Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, I invite you to take your Bible in hand if you brought your own Bible. If you did not, there are pew Bibles available to you. And we are studying verse by verse through the little book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 2 this morning. Our text today, verses 11 through 13. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. As has been said a number of times this morning, this is Holy Week. Our hearts and minds are turned to the cross as we anticipate the coming celebration of the resurrection next Sunday. But the cross comes before the celebration. As believers, we understand this, that at the cross, Jesus atoned for our sins. That is, he covered our sin by receiving the punishment that we justly deserve. The Bible further states that Jesus is the propitiation for us. That is, he satisfied God's wrath and sense of justice against sin. Here in Ephesians 2, Paul sheds even more light on the power and the impact of the shed blood of our Lord particularly and specifically as it relates to the composition of his church. In this text this morning, we'll see the relationship of Gentiles and Jews in the church, first before the cross and now after the cross event. Next Sunday, we're going to suspend our study for one week of Ephesians for Resurrection Sunday, and then Lord willing, be right back here in Ephesians 2 the following week. So let's read our text, Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Paul writes, Therefore... Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Well, Paul is writing this letter to a group of Christians who were, we believe, almost exclusively Gentile. So it's not surprising that he would address them with the phrase, you, the Gentiles. He's drawing their attention to the social and spiritual separation that was true of them before coming to faith in Jesus. Now, this is the second time here in chapter 2 alone, that he reminds Christians of their condition before conversion. He began chapter 2, you'll recall, by reminding them that before they were saved, they were spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, that they lived lives just like the rest of the world. They were pulled about by their own lust from place to place, and they really were pawns of the devil, though they didn't know it. Now, some might object to Paul's reminding Christians of their past shortcomings. He might make them feel bad about themselves after all, dragging up their past. Aren't we supposed to just have a positive outlook and and try to have our best life now? It is a dangerous thing to forget where one came from. A few weeks ago, a very well-known megachurch Baptist pastor preached a sermon in which he belittled Christians who go to small churches and said that uh, if you were a parent and you were bringing your child up in a small church, you were letting them down by not giving them the big church experience. Well, here's a man that's forgotten where he came from, I think. 
Did you know that the average Southern Baptist church in our convention of all 45,000 churches, we're told, the average church has less than 200 members and on any given Sunday has about 80 in church attendance. I don't know about you, I'm grateful for those churches because it was in one of those churches that I came to know about Jesus and I suspect many in this room can say the same. We must never forget where we came from. Now that's true of denominations, but it's also true for individual believers. So Paul reminds believers where they came from, not to shame them, but to show them and remind them of the power of the blood of Christ, the power to unite, the power to include, and the power to give hope. We'll look at those three things on your outline this morning from the text. First of all, the power to unite. Look at verse 11. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. The relationship between Jewish and Gentile Christians in the first century was something that obviously weighed very heavily on the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul. And for the next few weeks, uh, for the past few weeks rather, we've been studying Romans chapter 11 here on Wednesday evenings. And particularly we've been studying chapter 11. And chapter 11 is all about the relationship between Jewish and Gentile believers. Now there has been racial and cultural animosity between Jews and Gentiles for thousands of years. But here in chapter 2, Paul declares that the answer to that animosity, and I would add to all racial animosity, is found at the cross in the person of Jesus. You recall that it was God's eternal redemptive plan as recorded in the book of Genesis, that from all the nations of the world, he would choose one nation, specifically one man by the name of Abram, a pagan who lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. And he told him to get up and go to a land that he would show him, and he obeyed. And though he never was perfect in his faith, he is an example of all who live by faith, as the scripture says. And so Abram went to this new land, and there God made a promise to him in several parts. He says, I'm going to give you the land. He says, and from you, I'm going to make a great nation. And he says, from that nation, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, in hindsight, we know that he was speaking of the Messiah, that through the nation of Israel, the Messiah, the Savior of the world would come. But it was always God's plan that Israel, God's chosen people, was blessed to be a blessing. That is, they were not to be a reservoir, a collection point of God's blessing. They were to be a conduit, a canal through which God's blessings would flow to all people. But you know, according to Isaiah chapter 5 and other passages, that didn't happen, did it? In fact, by and large, many of the Jewish people, instead of turning outward, turned inward. Their being God's chosen people became a point of racial and cultural pride. They began to look down on many of the Gentile people and they ceased to bear fruit as God had called them to do. And so what does God do? All part of his plan. Paul says that he cut off some of those branches and grafted in these wild olive shoots many Gentile believers. This was all part of God's plan. Now, first of all, Paul reminds them in verse 11 that you are the uncircumcision. By the way, that was a pejorative term that Jewish people used of Gentiles. You'd see a Gentile walking down the street and you'd say, there goes one of the uncircumcision. They were very proud of this physical sign that God gave them to make them distinguishable from all the other nations of the world. And yet Paul gets in a little Jab here as well, in verse 11, he says, this circumcision is performed in the flesh by human hands. 
Because what does Paul know? He knows what the Old Testament prophet says and what the New Testament authors say, and that is true circumcision is circumcision of the heart. Where God opens up a person and takes away that heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, and we call this regeneration. And it's not merely outward that makes a person saved. Of course, this battle was fought in the first century church at the Council of Jerusalem where Paul stood and boldly said, salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. There were those who were coming in the church and saying, well, faith in Christ is wonderful, but to that you have to add circumcision and the keeping of the ceremonial law. And Paul stood up and said no. And the other church leaders agreed with him. And it was settled once for all that true salvation was through faith alone, that a Gentile did not have to become Jewish to be saved. But this division that Paul speaks of here was between the races, Gentiles and Jews, but it was more importantly a separation from Christ. Remember, throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul uses the same prepositional phrase over and over to describe those who've come to faith in Jesus. He says we are what? In Christ. And now he says these Gentiles, before they were saved, were separate from Christ. Look at verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. I can't think of a more horrible thought than to go to bed at night knowing you're separate from Christ. But dear ones, that is the condition of countless billions of people in the world today. Many of them don't have a relationship with Christ and many of them have never heard the name of Christ. And that is so tragic because the Bible teaches that without Christ, this world is vanity and waste. I believe that's what Jesus meant in John 15, 4, when he said to his disciples, remain in me and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Semicolon. Now hear this. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? He's not saying you can't build a house. He's not saying you can't invent something that contributes to the human race. He's saying you cannot do anything of any eternal significance or value when you're disconnected from the person and work of Jesus. But that is the condition of most people in the world. It's only through the powerful blood of Jesus can someone in that condition be brought close. Now the second thing we see is there is power in the blood to include. Again, verse 12, he says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Two words, excluded and strangers. That's not a condition that anyone enjoys being in in any social circumstance. I can remember growing up, we moved around quite a bit, and so my brother and I, quite often would have to enroll in a new school. We'd leave our friends behind at the last school and we'd move sometimes to a different state and we'd go to school for the first day, sometimes in the middle of the year, and you felt like a fish out of water. All eyes were on you, who's the new kid, what's he about? And everyone there knew more than you did about what was going on. It's not a fun situation to be in. You feel excluded and you feel like a stranger. Well, Paul says that's exactly the condition of Gentiles before they were saved. They were excluded. They were strangers. They were on the outside looking in at God's covenant promises. 
I say that because of what Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 22. He said, salvation is from the Jews. That's right. I, I fear sometimes that uh, we in the Western world think there are two paths to salvation. There's the Jewish path and there's the Gentile path. That's not it at all, right? There's only one eternal plan of redemption. John Piper says it this way. There is no salvation outside the true Israel. When redemptive history arrived at the incarnation, it did not split into two histories, one for the redemption of Israel and one for the redemption of the Gentiles. Instead, it opened, hear this, and expanded as to embrace all believing Gentiles into the people of God, the true Israel. In other words, in God's eternal plan, we have been included, I say we Gentiles, those of us who are Gentiles, into those exceeding great and precious promises through faith in Christ. Now, I told you we've been studying Romans 11 on Wednesday night. And if you remember your Bible, Romans chapter 11 addresses this Israel with question to what about the nation of Israel? Chapter 8 of Romans, we all love as Christians, right? It declares our assurance of salvation. It ends with the great promise that nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? Not even death. And so Paul anticipates some objections coming from within the church. He suspects someone's going to say, now wait a second, Paul. You said that God's promises are true and trustworthy and that when we're saved, we're always going to be saved. God's never going to change his mind. But didn't he change his mind with Israel? Didn't he make a promise to them that he didn't fulfill? After all, most of them are not believers, and that was true. Now on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved, most of them if not all Jewish. But from that point on, the pattern was that the vast, vast majority of first century believers were not Jewish, they were Gentiles. In fact, by and large, the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah. And that broke the heart of the Apostle Paul. And so he would go to the synagogues when he'd go on his missionary journeys, and often he was rejected there, sometimes brutally, violently, and then he would go to the Gentiles. But he never lost his love for his fellow countrymen, did he? Remember what he said, brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they would be saved. He even said he would be willing to forfeit his own salvation if they would come to faith. And then he begins to explain what God was doing with Israel. He says, what happened was that God planted this seed, and I take that to be the Abrahamic covenant. And that seed came up and produced a trunk. I take it to be his nation of Israel. And, and from that tr trunk came forth branches, individual Israelites. But most of those branches didn't produce fruit. And so what did the olive grower do with branches that didn't produce? He cut them off. He says some of those branches were cut off and they were replaced by wild olive grafts, that is, Gentiles. Now notice he said some. Not all, because there are some Jewish people being saved today, right? Most of us have Jewish friends who've come to faith, but by and large, most are rejecting. And so Paul points it out. He says, look, we know that God has not totally rejected Israel as a nation for two reasons. One, he says, I'm Jewish, and I'm a Christian, so there's at least one, and he says there's more than that. And then he told the story of Elijah. Do you remember? When Elijah was God's prophet, when Ahab was the king and Jezebel was his wicked wife. And Jezebel imported false gods into Israel. Many of the people started worshiping, worshiping her god, Baal, rather than the true god, Jehovah. And it broke Elijah's heart. 
and he, he called as a, for a duel, a challenge, if it were. He built an altar upon the mountain and said, let's kill an animal and let's soak the wood in the altar and dig a ditch around it with water. And whoever's God is the true God is going to show up today. And he let the priest of Baal go first and they began to wail and to pray to their God and cut themselves and nothing happened. And then Elijah prayed and God sent fire from heaven and he consumed the sacrifice and he lapped up the water in the ditch. And Elijah said, how long will you hesitate or limp along between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. But if Baal's God, serve him. And the people said, we'll serve Jehovah. And they put to death those wicked priests of Baal. Pretty soon Jezebel heard about it and she put a price on Elijah's head and he went into hiding in the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, feeling sorry for himself, he called out to God and said, God, I'm the only one left that loves you. You ever feel that way? God says, no, you're not. There are 7,000 others that have not bowed their knee nor kissed Baal. What was Paul's point? His point was it's always been the case that only a remnant of Jewish people were actually faithful. And that's the case today. It doesn't mean God's forsaken them forever. It just means that history's repeating itself. And let me quickly add to this. Paul said one of his motivations for witnessing like he did to Gentiles was that it might make Jewish people jealous and that they would want that same Savior. And he held out eschatological hope that one day all of Israel would be saved. The Bible indicates that God's not through with the Jewish people yet. And so the point is this. Paul says, look, Jewish people, Gentile people were divided. There was hostility between them. But when Jesus came, he has made an opportunity, first of all, for people who were at hostility with God to be right with him. And then people that were hostile towards one another could be right with one another, right? And that's made possible by the power of the blood of Jesus. The power to include. Thirdly and finally, the power of the blood is to give hope. Look what he says, the last phrase of verse 12. Speaking of these Gentiles before they were saved, he says, you had no hope and were without God in the world. That's really two truths that are mirror images of one another. To be without God is to be without hope. And to be without hope is to be without God. Alexander Pope has a quote that many of you memorized in grade school. He said, hope springs eternal in the human breast. I suspect hope was, uh, Pope was likely speaking of the strength of the human spirit to endure incredible hardships, to persevere, the will to live that God has placed within us. We all love to read novels and watch movies about someone who is going through incredible odds and yet overcomes. Many of those stories are true. But when the Bible speaks of hope, as it does here in Ephesians 2, it is not speaking of some unfailing optimism. It is speaking of that which is settled and firm and unmovable. And when Paul says to Christians that we weep not as those who have no hope, he's not saying that we're eternally optimistic. He's not saying that we're keeping a good thought that all is going to turn out well in the end. Rather, he is saying that as Christians, we have staked our eternal future to the promises and claims of Jesus Christ. 
That is the hope that is within us. But he said before Christ came into our life, we were excluded from that. We were on the outside looking in. We had no hope because we didn't have God. And he's specifically talking about the Gentiles because they didn't know about God's promises. They didn't know about who he was. They didn't have the Old Testament scriptures. And so what do they do? Are they, can we excuse our Gentile ancestors because they didn't have the Old Testament? Paul says, no. Look at, a, look at Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is explaining the course of human history. <laughs> there are people who make a lot of money and hold a lot of degrees and prestigious titles at universities who try to figure out where we went wrong in human history. And it's found on the pages of Romans chapter 1. Paul explains it. He says this, Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. We said this last week. God puts within the heart of every person at the moment of conception, I take it, a knowledge of himself. And so we have to suppress that truth through our own disbelief and willful, stubborn disobedience. Not only that, he says in nature we can see God's divine power, right? Remember that uh, man over in deepest, darkest Africa can go out at night, look up into the heavens and see God's handiwork in the stars and know someone other than himself who is very powerful exists. Not only that, when he holds his newborn baby in his arms and when he sees the rain nourishing his crops and feeding him, he knows that God is not a distant deity. He knows that he superintends his creation and that he's a good provider. And so you would think that would cause that person to pursue that God and want to know him. But Paul says that's not what happened. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men and of birds and four-footed animals. And the King James says, creepy, crawly things. You say, well, that's, a, that's an exaggeration. That's a hyperbole. No, it's not. You ever been to India? Ever been to Asia? You go to some of those temples, some of the best educated, brightest people in the world are worshiping creepy, crawly things. Monkeys, snakes, lizards, spiders, things on, lower on the totem pole than that. Why? Because they will not receive the God that is revealed in nature, and they will not reveal the God, uh, receive the God of the Bible, so they create a God that they can better get along with. By the way, it's not just people who worship in temples that do that. That's what every single person who rejects Jesus does. Humans are inveterate worshipers. They're going to worship something. They're going to cut down a tree and hew out a little statue and make sacrifices to that, or they're going to worship money. They're going to worship the physical. They're going to worship the material, but they're going to worship something. And so Paul says this was the condition of, of the Gentiles before Jesus opened their eyes spiritually. 
They were cut off from God. They were on the outside looking in. They were hopeless eternally because they were without God. Come back to Ephesians. You know we're not going to leave it there. Verse 13, there's that word again. But, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here's the second time in this same chapter 2 that Paul brings us right down to the bottom of the well, only to yank us back out, right? Remember what he said in Ephesians 2.1? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were pulled about like a bull with a ring in his nose by your own lust. You were headed down the same course of destruction and damnation as everyone else. You were in bondage to your own sin and a child of the devil. Verse 4 says, but God, even though you were dead in transgressions, made you alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here he is again. He says, don't forget where you came from. When you're tempted to look down on Jewish people, remember, you Gentiles, that before you were saved, you were the uncircumcision. You were separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. First of all, you were far off from God, right? You were his enemy. But you were also far away from other people. You were at hostility and enmity, not just with Jewish people, but with all other people. Here is the power of the cross. It is the power to reconcile lost sinners to their creator. And it is the power to reconcile people to people, right? And we look around our landscape today and we see racial hostility. We see political strife. And we see this country seemingly sitting on a powder keg. And the answer is not to elect the right person. The answer is to turn to Jesus. That's what our nation needs. We need to have that middle wall of separation broken down between lost people and God. And we need to have that enmity between man and man set aside as people come together to worship the same Lord and Savior. Lord Jesus, do it, right? Join me as we pray to that end. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, thank you that you have reminded us today of who we were before we were saved. Lord, you don't do that to beat us down with guilt. You tell us in Romans 8, 1, there's therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. You do it to remind us not to forget where we came from, to understand the power that worked within us to save us, to draw us near. Lord, we were lost, but not just a little lost. We were hopeless, helpless, dead in sins. But Lord, you intervened. You weren't willing to leave us in that state. You sent Jesus to take on a human life in the form of a baby in his mother Mary's womb. He was born and he lived a perfect life, tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. He went to the cross and he atoned, he covered our sin. He is the propitiation, the satisfaction of your wrath. And Lord, we rejoice in that today. He's broken down that wall of separation and now we are invited to come with boldness 
into your presence. We join hearts and hands with people of every ethnicity, Jews and Gentiles, black and white, Asian, Latino, African, and every other group, Lord, we thank you that you bring us together through Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.